Hannah Young, and you're listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Isnick, sponsored by Philanthropic Impact. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today, I'm really honored to have Dwight McBride with us. Dwight is the president of the New School University here in New York. He became the university's ninth president in 2020. And we're going to talk a little bit about that school because it's quite an important school in the in the history of higher education. And Dwight is an accomplished higher education leader. He's an educator, a scholar, an author. Over nearly three decades in higher education, he has encouraged innovation and scholarship in teaching, launched initiatives to build interdisciplinary strength around global challenges, and really promoted experiential education, which is something I'm a big believer in and want to talk about today. Also, in the interest of full disclosure, I should note that my husband, Harlan Bratcher, was for almost two decades a trustee at the Parsons School of Design, which is a part of the New School University. But that said, Dwight McBride, welcome to The Caring Economy. Thank you, Toby. It's really exciting to be here with you today. So, Dwight, we always ask our guests the first question, which is, how did you get where you got? And not like the, you know, the pretty sanitized version, but you know, what were some of the bumps along the way? Maybe where you're born, how you were raised, went to school, and how you found your calling. I was born in um, a small town in South Carolina, so I grew up in the rural South. First uh, generation in my family to go to college, my sister and I, uh, we were one, uh, two kids um, uh, to our parents, both of whom were textile workers. My mother uh, finished high school. My father uh, never actually even finished high school. Uh, both were uh, and are, they're still uh, with us, extraordinary people, hardworking people who you describe, uh, describe as salt of the earth, um, mm -hmm. uh, some of the most uh, generous people I've ever met and who made enormous sacrifices for me and my sister to be able to have the kinds of lives that we've uh, gone on to enjoy. And there was a real intentional commitment to that. I mean, I Growing up, there was no question about whether we'd go to college. It was just, you know, it was just drilled into us as young kids. It was important. Education was the key. Education was the one thing no one can take away from you. And my parents made extraordinary sacrifices uh, to make that possible. And in some ways, it's that uncommon sacrifice that's been a huge part of forming my own value system around the importance uh, and the transformative power of higher education really fundamentally the direction of my life. That, that's not hyperbole. That's just reality. And there's a whole story behind this. It's probably too long to tell here today, but went on to Princeton University uh, from South Carolina. <laughs> um, and, you know, but behind that story in brief are... Um, a couple of teachers that were really invested in me um, and really encouraged me to think big and to think about this place that was just not even on um, the horizon of thought for mm -hmm. someone coming from where I was coming from, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so went on to Princeton, had an extraordinary experience there, uh, worked with really some of the most incredible minds of, uh, of our time. Um, and one of the things that really clicked in and changed my life there was the experience of being a research assistant for Toni Morrison. And that experience was, was made possible because of a woman named Ruth Simmons, who was, uh, of course, the first African-American to lead an Ivy League institution 
Brown University. At the time, she was in a, an associate uh, dean of the faculty role at Princeton and really took me under her wing and was an incredible mentor to me. And she introduced me to Tony, who was new to the faculty at the time. And I worked with her my last, my last year and a half at Princeton um, that summer, senior year, and then the summer after senior year as well. And that experience really made the difference between someone who thought they were going on to law school at the time, in part because that's what I thought I knew, my own sort of limited history and experience. It opened up the world of research for me. And I remember being taken to my first conference by Toni Morrison, my ac academic conference. Sure. I made that connection, right, of, oh, so the people who teach these classes are also the ones that write the books, right? They're the ones that are creating the knowledge. They're, and it just came together in this amazing way. And I was sold. I wanted to be, I wanted to be in that. <laughs> I wanted to be a part of that. And it was... She, that was really one of the places where I started to uh, take my intellect seriously. I went on to graduate school at UCLA, where I did my PhD in my master's and my PhD in literature. After that, uh, went to work at the University of Pittsburgh as an assistant professor. Uh, shortly thereafter, came to Chicago, where I would spend 19 years of my career um, between the University of Illinois at Chicago and Northwestern University in different roles. I uh, was head of the Department of African-American Studies at UIC, became, was recruited to Northwestern to chair their Department of African-American Studies, where we built the nation's seventh, at that time, seventh PhD program in African-American Studies. Mm -hmm. Then came back to UIC as Dean of Liberal Arts and Sciences. I was there during the tumultuous period of 2007 through 2010. Um, so got to live the recession uh, as a mm -hmm. uh, as a dean. administrator. That was a, a, an interesting and challenging experience. Then was recruited back to Northwestern as dean of the graduate school uh, and associate provost for graduate education, where I worked for seven more years uh, doing work that I remain proud of in that context. And then after that, uh, was recruited to Emory where I served as provost and executive vice president for academic affairs for three years before coming to the new school. Um, so it's, you know, my life has been one of, as I reflect on it, one of that is unlikely, right? Uh, given where I started, where I came mm -hmm. from. And I hope that it has served as, as inspiration for others who uh, come from modest means that where you start doesn't have to limit where you end up and where you go. Yeah. Uh, that's one of the the things that is the power and promise of America that I work so hard every day to, to be among the people to try to make sure mm -hmm. that our country's living up to, to that That's promise. promise. Yeah. Absolutely. Can you take us back though to those, you said, was it two teachers in high school? Can you give us a little more color there in terms of like, I think we all had that teacher in our lives. I know I did in an English teacher, but Tell us a little bit more about what they did or how they opened your eyes or how they challenged you to things that you didn't even know were out there. Well, there were two teachers. I mean, there were several who were very important in my life, to be sure, but um, two that really stand out. One of them was Sue Tomlinson. She was my English teacher, also happened to be the, the person who was the advisor for student government. I was very involved, actively involved in student government. And in fact, went on to become the first student body president at the first African-American student body president at Princeton. But Sue 
was uh, one of the early mentors and people that saw something special in me and worked with me through my senior year when I was state student council president in South Carolina, and we mm -hmm. hosted the state convention uh, there. But the other uh, teacher was uh, a man named Mr. Brown. And Mr. Brown was not my English teacher, but I worked in the office, principal's office at lunchtime as a lunch runner, that's what we called it. And the person who would go and do you <laughs> kind of call the classes in order so that they didn't, students call didn't call it once, up, right? Yeah. Uh, all at once. And so I did the English department's uh, wing. And Mr. Brown one day said to me, you know, Dwight, I was talking with a friend of mine and he reminded me a lot of you. And I thought to myself, you know, and he went to Princeton and I thought that would be a great place for Dwight, like someone. Wow. And I remember when he said that, I, I mean, Toby, I laughed. I mean, I, I laughed out, you know, because can you imagine like we're in Belton, South Carolina, a place where no one talks <laughs> about, thinks about, dreams about like a place like Princeton. Right. And so I, I remember laughing. I said, Mr. Brown, what would Princeton be interested in someone from Podunk, South Carolina, like me, right? And he said, Dwight, you've done really well. You're a great student. You've done it. I think you'd be, you'd thrive at a place. I said, I said, Mr. Brown, that's lovely. I appreciate it. Thank you. But I've already been admitted early to another school that I'd applied to and et cetera. And so he just kept at it. Every day I came to call his class, he would, so did you think about it anymore? I mean, he just wouldn't <laughs> let it go. He and, saw it. And so then uh, one day I said, Mr. Brown, if you, if you will just stop asking me about this, I'll go home and talk to my parents. <laughs> so I did. I mean, I thought this would end it, right? So I yeah. go home and talk to mom and dad. They were like, well, you know, it's a, it's a, I mean, that's a, it's a great place. And what do you have to lose was what they said. You know, you've already been early admitted here and da, da, da. I looked at the Barron's book because back then, you know, we didn't have. That's all how I did it. Yeah. Deadline was uh, something like a week or 10 days away, something that made it impractical for me to be able to right away get an application book and then get it mailed back to me, fill it out and then mail it back in time. So I thought this would end it. I went back and I told Mr. Brown, literally we're standing at the door of his classroom having this conversation. And I said, it's just not possible. And one of my fellow students, her name is Dawn Rucker. She's, we're friends on Facebook to this day in part for this reason. She piped up, she'd been eavesdropping and said, well, I have a Princeton application. Oh, like it was like a scene out of a movie, right? She had gone to the governor's school for the arts that summer. She was an exquisite writer. She said a Princeton recruiter had come and I just wanted to see what a Princeton application looked like. So I took one. So she brought that application to school the next day which is the application I would use to apply yep. to Princeton. And then it set off a, you know, a whole set of <laughs> committee and the da-da-da-da. Because then, you know, Princeton was interested in figuring out who this person was and what kind of education I had. They didn't know anything about my school. And so we had to provide all of this documentation. Yep. The serendipity. I love that story. I'm also reminded, um, wasn't it this very week that um, they announced that they're doing in the next 10 years, they're going to some kind of tuition neutrality that's just phenomenal for such an elite school. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I do. They, uh, they, they've been need blind for a long time. They actually then went to uh, a system where, where no one would have to take out loans. Uh, students with need wouldn't have to take out loans to attend Princeton, that their need would be uh, made up by 
institutional aid and for fam it was for families below um who were making a certain yeah. threshold two hundred dollars something like that. I think it's a hundred thousand dollars below than they are. Then they go they go and I think that's the next step. If it's a whatever that number is that mm -hmm. students do not have to pay tuition uh, to go to Princeton. The amount of aid that I was able to receive, and this is, again, it goes to how access is important, making sure that people who don't traditionally have access to the ecosystem of higher education do. Princeton made it possible for me to graduate with relatively little loan, student loans. Right. I mean, yeah. I had some, but nowhere near you know what could have been possible given the amount of money that it was yeah. to go to a place like that and, and we also hear usually in the DEI, the diversity equity inclusion space about women and girls that she has to see it to be it it's the same thing here right Dwight you need to know that a place like Princeton exists to even have access to it or aspire for access to it so even pop culture Toby was for every year that I was at Princeton I went back to South because they would they would send students um, the admissions office. I don't know if they still do this, but they would send students back to certain areas where they didn't have a significant enough concentration to send admissions recruiters. Um, so I did that every year that I was at Princeton. I went back to South Carolina. I would go and visit different schools over my midterm break. Right, mm -hmm. um, they would pay for me to go home, send materials, etc. I, I did that because I thought it was important. And I knew that there were just students who, one, would never even think about a place like, it just wasn't on the horizon. Two, seeing someone that looked like them, I knew that it was important because I knew how important it would have been for me, right, to know sure. that. And someone who could actually talk to them about financial aid and the fact that this is possible, that mm -hmm. it's not just a pipe dream, right? And so that kind of, lifting as you climb ethic has always been a part of continues to be a part of my life and the way I, yeah. I operate in the world but even then uh, I knew that I needed to do what I could do in that moment to make this more possible for others as well mm -hmm. can you say in, in the broadest sense I, I think most people are like-minded with you and I about the, the exposure the access the the opportunities that are presented to people but Clearly, there is a, a silent or sometimes vocal minority that are opposed to anything that you call it, would you will, they'll perceive it as affirmative action, they'll uh, see it as reverse discrimination. Do you try to address a detractor who wants to try and bring more equity and inclusion to higher education? Or do you kind of not add oxygen to that fire? Because it's still very much a, a part of our ecosystem, I think. So it's interesting. People who come to that view come to it because they somehow imagine that they're starting from a place of in order for there to be fundamental fairness, right? We all have to be treated in the same way. Underlying assumption to that assumption, right, which is patently false in America, is that everyone is not treated the same way right, for the, throughout the history of this nation, right? That's Correct. just Correct. not the way the world has worked. African-American people of color have been treated differently in this country from before it's, it's I was literally working on a speech this morning that I'm gonna give later this week uh, for Constitution Day, um, talking about this very reality, right? White supremacy has been at the core and at the center of who America is from its beginning. We can't mm -hmm. deny that, we can't, right 
whitewash that and wish it away. It is what it is, right? Yep. Gay and lesbian people have been marginalized, sidelined, called abominations, right? Women have been treated unfairly, still make 74 cents on the dollar to every man, right? Mm -hmm. So those are our reactions. I don't, I'm not talking about the world as I hope it will be. That's the work we do every day to try and create equity. But to create equity, we have to begin with a realistic assessment of where we are and where people are. So just not interested in that as an argument because it's just so faulty. You can't be a student of history. You can't actually read the data and the statistics and not understand that people are not fundamentally treated equally in this culture. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, again today we have Professor, Dr. actually, Dwight McBride, who's the president of the New School University here in New York. Dwight, as a scholar, we understand now how you got drawn into higher education, both as scholar and an administrator. For your scholarship, you chose to focus on African-American studies and then to some degree women and gender studies, but why don't you tell us how you got there? And then maybe how you're seeing the research evolve over the past 30 years. So it's interesting. I, I'm not sure that how I got there is, is obvious. The road was a little twistier and windier than, than it may at first appear. I actually started graduate school thinking that I was going to study British and U.S. Romanticism. I mean, that was where I started, right? And I was interested in looking at uh, figurations of race in the Romantic era. So that was kind of, you know, big picture. As I started to do more of that work, however, as I became a graduate student, what I realized is so much of what had been done in that space was looking at what white writers said about Black people or about slavery. And I just wasn't interested in re-inscribing that that narrative. work, that narrative, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I really wanted to do something different. And so a part of it, uh, uh, me then sort of came through the back door to early African-American literature. Because I was like, well, what are Black writers at the same time period during the, you know, late 18th, early mm -hmm. 19th century, they yep. saying about race? What are they saying about slavery? What are they saying about abolition? And so that was my entree into early African-American literature. And from there, my, my dissertation was about abolitionist rhetoric in Britain and the US. And, and when you start to look paradigmatically at some of the rhetoric uh, around abolitionism, you start to think about things like uh, the abolitionists claim that slavery was a sin, slavery was against nature, slavery was an abomination. All of these were claims that were made by the abolitionists. But if you start to think about the work of sexuality and sexual orientation, the rhetorical paradigms that get used are not dissimilar. Uh, homosexuality, right, quote unquote, right. is a sin, it's against nature, it's not an natural. abomination, right? So. Mm -hmm. The, when I started to think about it at a, just at a level of a meta level of just the paradigms, I thought, well, it's interesting that when America, when America, American culture and politics deals with difference, difference, of difference, right? <laughs> yeah. that it does so in these paradigmatic ways rhetorically. And so religion is important. What's natural is important. The question of humanity, right? Who gets access to the claim of being human? For me, the, um, the entree into 
work on race and sexuality, looking at that intersection. So I was first invited, and this was not on my radar. It was right after graduate school. Um, I'd finished the dissertation. I was doing this project, starting this thing on James Baldwin at the time. It was very nascent. It was going to be a panel at the Modern Language Association. Um, and I didn't think it would be much beyond that. But um, mm -hmm. two things happened that really changed the course of my scholarship in those early mm -hmm. days. One is when we put the call out for that James Baldwin panel, first of all, we received way more um, just proposals okay. than I had anticipated. I mean, there must have been 40, 50 different proposals for a panel that had three people on it, right? So there is a lot of new and interesting work happening on Baldwin. So I leaned into that. I really wanted to know why that was. But at the same time, I had been asked by a colleague, Devin Carbato, uh, who I went on to uh, edit a book with um, a few years later, to contribute an essay to a special issue of a journal looking at this question of the intersection of race and sexuality. And I said, Devin, I'm really not, you know, that's not really my scholarship. I'm a, you know, I do this 19th century thing. And da -da. he said, Dwight, yeah. He said, but I just really feel like given your experience and da -da -da, that this would be something that people will be interested to hear what you have to say. And so I said, well, let me give it some thought. And so that's when the Baldwin stuff was happening, you know, the paradigm, uh, stuff was, you know, swirling. And I wrote this piece that has now been printed, I, I don't even know how many times, it was called Can the Queen Speak? Racial Essentialism, Sexuality, and the Problem of Authority. First time that we're really beginning to use Kimberly Crenshaw's work from intersectionality to look at race and sexuality specifically through the lens of Blacks and, um, and sexuality, right? Mm -hmm. So, that essay came out and uh, as I said, it it was all people wanted to hear me talk about. So for <laughs> years, I had invitations to speak and to come to different conferences and et cetera. And then as a few years later, it became evident that there was a broader movement afoot. So there were, you know, I discovered Absolutely. the work of Philip Brian Harper and Kathy Cohen and E. Patrick Johnson and all of these people who ultimately came to uh, together at the Black Queer Studies Conference. Mm -hmm. But that was the first gathering of, of that generation, seminal gathering of that generation of scholars in this emerging field called Black Queer Studies. And, yeah. um, and the way it's changed since then, I will say, I mean, you'd be hard pressed today, Toby, to find a respectable institution where there wasn't a, a graduate student doing work in this area. I mean, whether sure. it's religion, literature and culture, sociology, political science, I mean, we are everywhere now. The work of what we would call Black queer studies, that intersectional work, is happening across the board. Those of us who, you know, uh, were there in the those early nascent days, it's been kind of extraordinary to watch the explosion mm -hmm. of this work. And even now seeing our students, right, be tenured and running programs at major research universities now too, is just really incredibly satisfying. Yeah. It's a gross generalization, but how are the students today vis-a-vis -vis their views as compared to the faculty administrators. 
are they all like-minded or do you find that a lot of the young students are deluded in their expectations when they come in or, <laughs> and maybe this is age old, right? The students are always the young, optimistic, liberal, and then they harden. I mean, are they, are they prepared for this, the rigor that you're giving them and how do they interact? Or is it, well, I'll let you answer. I think absolutely the students are prepared for the rigor. I'd say the one thing that I worry most about is I find that our students come in very sort of politically interested and invested. Some of them have really strong theoretical skill, like very theoretically informed. What I worry about, and this is, you know, uh, me as the, perhaps the academic, right? Yes. I do worry about um, how little our students seem to understand and appreciate the history of our disciplines and the histories, the contextual histories out of which the work that they're interested in doing um, comes, Uh right? That's the, the biggest thing, because I think there's, And that's a part of a larger, to my mind, uh, abdication of an interest or uh, interest in history and responsibility to history. To go Mm -hmm. back to the point you were making earlier is the reason that we can, you know, talk about things like reverse discrimination, right? The only reason the way you can get there is if you are making a completely ahistoricist argument, right? If you take history out of the equation, and an understanding of where the work you're doing comes from. There are all kinds of claims that one can make that really will be in the, at the space of being around yeah. because they're not grounded in history. That's the case with a lot of the work, particularly in this area. I think it's really important. And I'm, and I'm grateful in some ways in my own education that I came through the history of this work. Sure. Do work in race and sexuality. I thought where you were going to go, and I'll go there now with you, is the experiential education. I thought what you're going to say is it's one thing to be grounded in the theory and the critical and the canon, so to speak, but but where does the rubber meet the road? And that's the experiential education, right? Like it's about getting out and and test driving these theories, these studies and the like, don't you think? I want to hold space for both of those things. I absolutely think the academy must be a place where people can think without the other consequences of having those things work in the real world, but just thinking for the thinking. It's really the last place that um, left in our society almost where you can do that. So I think that's important. That said, I do think that it's really important uh, for institutions not only to be responsible for uh, providing strong liberal arts education to our students, but really understanding what are those primary skills come from a liberal arts education? Critical thinking, writing, right? Logic and reasoning, problem solving. Those are the things that whether you're studying English, psychology, sociology, whatever it is, sciences, you are learning fundamentally those skills. And those skills can be translated into a variety of industries, right? Because part of what we're teaching people is not, I'm not preparing you as a student for this job or that job. I'm preparing you as a student to be able to do a number of jobs over the course of your career, right? Yep. Because you think about it in this regard. I'm a university president. There was nothing about being an English literature student, right, in and of itself that on the face of it, 
should have prepared me for this role, right? But what it prepared me for was how to learn new things. That's what I know how to do. Brought me into a, a new context and I'll figure it out. What's the yep. context? What is the history? What is it, you know? And, and that's, that's what we're teaching students. And I think so experiential learning, I think, has incredible value in that because it provides a living laboratory for students to be able to test drive, right? Um, what those skills are that they're getting as students and how those relate uh, in a real life situation where I have to learn to do something new. And be, hopefully, yes. you know, that's be the story of the rest of, uh, the rest of all of our lives, learning to yes. do new right? Lifelong learning. And I think of it as like exercising a muscle, in this case, an intellectual muscle. But the more we are challenging ourselves and exercising and applying these lessons and these instructions, the more nimble we will be for whatever comes around the corner. So Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So the time, the time has flown by so quickly with uh, President McBride from New School University. I'm, I'm sad to say we need to wrap here, but um, Dwight, would you just sort of, we've talked about so many challenges in higher education and I'd love to come back and talk more, but tell us uh, what gives you a sense of hope for the future. I think we're both pretty much optimists, but I want you to have that last word. I, I appreciate that. And yeah, I, I am an optimist. And I, I tell you, in times when it's hard to hold on to that sometimes, I'll admit that too, but I insist on it. I'm a hopeful person. I'm an optimist. I believe that if hope and optimism die, that we're really lost. So for me, the things that give me hope, um, I, as much as the uh, last couple or, uh, of years of the pandemic have been challenging, um, it's also for me shown a great degree of human, of our resiliency. Um, we've also learned we can um, do a lot of things, um, these technologies that we, we all had to go on a grand experiment. Um, and it's not certainly the only way I want to live and interact with people, but it's one mechanism I think can also broaden, our act, broaden access, which is exciting to me. Um, it also, my core belief in the, the transformative power of education is why I do what I do every day. Um, I really try to remind myself of every day of the why I've been to do this work. And I mm -hmm. do it because I know how powerful transformative education can be in people's lives and mine. So that gives me hope. It also gives me hope that this is a generation of young people who care about the climate and care about climate change. Um, I think it's been one that we have been asleep at the wheel, um, mm -hmm. our generation and uh, one for um, their assistance about this as the issue of our time, I think is also hope. I will say the incredible reckoning that we have experienced over these last couple of years it really was inaugurated, sadly, with George Floyd and so many others. That was really a, that was a catalytic moment, has wrought really important conversations and change in every sector, whether it's higher ed, it's corporations, um, in cultures, municipalities, all of that. Um, really gives me a great deal for the future. We have some more work here. ahead, but, but yeah. just, I think we have a lot to work with too. 
I couldn't agree more. Uh, again, ladies and gentlemen, today it's been such a thrill to have Dr. Dwight McBride with us, the president of the New School University. Dwight, please do come back again because we have just begun to scratch the surface. It will be my pleasure, Toby. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick. Please share your comments and questions with Toby via Twitter at TUSNIC or LinkedIn at Toby Usnick. And thank you for sharing the caring economy with your friends and colleagues.